Morning, church, as you are finding a, a seat, I'm going to invite you to take your copy of God's Word. Turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 12 this morning, Mark chapter 12. If you are worshiping with us online this morning, I'm thankful that you are there worshiping with us, and what a joyous men to, to be led this morning in, in worship and through song and in prayer. Through our time of family dedication, Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17, we're walking through the gospel of Mark. We're coming to a place where we have to ask the question, where do our allegiances lie? From Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17, where do your allegiances, where do my allegiances lie? At the 8 o'clock service, I was telling the story this morning that I just have very little memory of kindergarten. I mean, is that something that you remember really, really well? Danielle, my wife, she seems to have these kind of vivid memories of people that were in her kindergarten class with her, her teacher, and she just has all these memories. I was saying at 8 o'clock that the only thing I could remember was Miss Fairchild, the teacher's name that I had for kindergarten. Uh, In between 8 o'clock and the 9.30 service, I got a text message from my mom, and she was saying, Miss Fairchild wasn't your kindergarten teacher. She was your first grade teacher. Right? So, so the one thing that I thought I remembered, I was wrong about. So I always love my mom. She's probably watching right now. So she's probably watching what I would say about her text message in between the services right now. But uh, it's always good to have something about your past being fact-checked in, in real time right there. So I don't even remember who my kindergarten teacher was. And, and she said she didn't remember either. So I'm sure we could uh, figure that out. But I tell you this, I do remember this. One of the earliest memories I had of going to school was standing beside my desk with the rest of my class, uh, finding the flag in the room, putting my right hand over my heart, and doing what? Pledging allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the United States of America and to the flag for which it stands, one nation. I, I can't, you could say I didn't say it a, a lot here. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. I have a feeling that's a common memory for many of us that are here. That that pledge of allegiance. Now, Mark chapter 12 is going to, in, in a very real way, ask us, where do our allegiances lie? What do we pledge allegiance to? Who do we pledge allegiance to? What do we pledge allegiance to? As dual citizens of our earthly citizenship and an eternal citizenship, how do we understand the allegiances of life to that end? Jesus very clearly speaks to that in these verses found in Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 13. And they sent to him, they sent to Jesus, some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk, and they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true, and you don't care about anyone's opinion. Just write in your margin, flattery 101 right here. They don't mean a thing that they're saying. You're not swayed by appearances. That was true, no doubt, but truly teach the way of God. That is true, but all they're trying to do here is ingratiate themselves to trap Jesus. They're asking a question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, able to see through their question to their motivation, he sees their hypocrisy. He said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. 
Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. And they marveled at him. Now, who is the they of verse 13? Go, go back, look with me. In your copy of God's word, they sent to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians. You need to understand, we're walking through Mark's gospel. The chief priests, the teachers of the law, the elders, they have their eyes set upon Jesus. They want to silence Jesus. They want to end his ministry and the threat of his ministry to their existence and to their allegiances. So they send two polar opposite groups the Pharisees and the Herodians. The Pharisees, the way they related to Roman rule was one of separation. Get as far away from it. They wanted to purify uh, Israel of the Roman invaders. They felt Rome was a, a constant threat to them. They could not do anything with them, so they were separationists. On the other end of the political and religious spectrum are the Herodians. The Herodians were accommodationists. What that means is, is they accommodated. They worked within the system. The Pharisees would look at the Herodians and say, they're just a bunch of traitors. The Herodians would say, hey, look, we, we got to get along, or we got to go along to get along here. We, we got to work within the system here. So you have two polar opposite groups in relationship to Roman rule, and then they have one thing in common, their distaste and their distrust for Jesus. They have one thing in common, their desire to silence Jesus, because for the Pharisees, Jesus was a threat to their religious beliefs, their religious practices. To the Herodians, he was a threat to their political arrangement with Rome. So they pose a question, do we pay taxes to Caesar or do we not? It's like a simple yes or no question. How in the world would this have been used as a trap? Well, if you understand that first century world, if Jesus says, yeah, go ahead and pay your taxes to Caesar, there had been a group that said, oh, look, he, he's forgotten what Rome has done to us. Every Israelite living in that day would have had a story of a person that the Roman government had executed, arrested, had sold into slavery. They would mark up their taxes more and more and more. And then you would have an Israelite living upon the land that God promised them. And they would kick them off the land. They would enslave them or arrest them. So you had that story. So if Jesus says, yes, pay Taxes to Caesar. You'd have people say, look how he's betraying his own Jewish people. But if he says, no, don't pay taxes to Caesar, you'd have people say, look, he's just like those other military zealots who are trying to overthrow Roman rule. We've got to silence him. Here is a protest. We have to jail him. We have to execute him. So either way, they feel that they have the perfect question to back Jesus into a corner. Whether he answers yes or whether he answers no, they have proof that he needs to be silenced. Jesus answers by saying, hey, does anybody have a denarius? The denarius was what was used to pay the actual head tax. Every Israelite living in the land of that day had to pay to the Roman government, this foreign invaders, had to pay taxes to live on the land that God gave them and promised them. They pay through the denarius. Now notice that Jesus doesn't go 
um, you know, looking for change in his pockets. Notice the disciples don't have change in their pockets. So it's the very people that are asking the question to Jesus. They have to provide this. You see it on the screen, a silver denarius. Notice the quote-unquote heads and tails of the denarius. On one side of the coin, you would have the image of Caesar himself. You have this Latin inscription that says, Tiberius Caesar, August son of the divine Augustus. On the flip side of it, on the tail side, you would have what maybe is the emperor's wife, maybe a female high priestess. And under that, in the Latin inscription, the high priest. These coins are proclaiming, anytime someone uses the currency, they're proclaiming the deity of the emperor. They're proclaiming that Caesar is God. They're proclaiming his greatness across the world. So Jesus says, hold that denarius, look at it with me, whose image and whose inscription is upon it, whose likeness and whose description is this? And they answer simply, well, Caesar's. And then verse 17, Jesus says, well, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Do you notice the response? It's simple, but he silences them. They marveled at him. In this moment, the, the individuals that are accusing Jesus, that are trying to trap Jesus, have been thwarted. They, they've been outwitted by Jesus' answer as he gives this beautiful balance of our role of dual allegiances, ultimately answering to God first and foremost, but there is an earthly allegiance that we have even to Caesar. Ken Hughes is a pastor outside of the Chicago area that says about this passage here that it was astounding in the moment that it was uttered. It is today universally acclaimed as the single most influential political statement ever made in history. The history, Ken Hughes says, of the world. Uh, those are strong words about Mark chapter 12, verse 17 right here. Other commentators uh, agree that these are decisive, determinative words that have shaped Western civilization as we know it. We hold it before us in God's word. Now, what I want you to see is not that this is just an important word about how we function as citizens here on earth, but I want you to see how Jesus orders and prioritizes the believer's allegiances. There are two allegiances that we have. One is greater than the other. First, I want you to see a Christian's earthly allegiance. Render. Maybe your translation says give. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Now, what, what would have been so unique is that Jesus in this moment is, is assuming that there is a, a valid place for government, even when the government is controlled by someone who claims to be God. Do you notice what Jesus, do you notice the nuance of this? That Jesus isn't saying, overthrow it all, get rid of it all, it's all corrupt, it's all useless. No, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Uh, in your copy of God's Word, like in the margin, if you feel comfortable doing this, the best way to understand this passage is to connect it to what Paul says in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. 
It is, it is commentary from Paul expanding upon these very words here. Romans chapter 13, verse 1 reads, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So Paul, in conversation with Jesus' words, are talking about a foundational role of authority here on earth, that God has instituted authority, and authority is okay, and it's good, and he uses it for human flourishing, even when that authority denies the supreme authority of God himself here. Now, what's important to understand is this isn't a carte blanche invitation for Caesar to ask anything and everything of Caesar's citizens. Jesus balances it, doesn't it? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. Foundationally, it is important for you to understand government is not God. Caesar is not ultimate. It's important for us to be reminded there's only one Messiah and his throne has not and never will be in the Oval Office, in the Kremlin, or at Buckingham Palace. Government is not God. Government is not ultimate. We give to God, more importantly, what is God's only? So when the state, when Caesar, when the government asks for what only God deserves, when the government asks for our worship, our undying loyalty or obedience, Christians have, Christians are, and Christians will across this earth push back and resist. A Christian must resist when the government asks or forces us to violate the clear commands of the Word of God. It's an extreme example, but it's a clear example. When you go back to World War II, you go back to Germany, you have a name by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, professor, seminary president, student of God's word, preacher. We know him as an author of the cost of discipleship, life together, ethics. Bonhoeffer, under Hitler's Nazi regime, began to be uncomfortable with the way that the Nazi party was claiming to be the state religion. So to hell Hitler was coming through the church, and there began to be this confluence of the church and the government together. Bonhoeffer says it cannot be. He resists. He, along with thousands of other German Christians of that day, started the Confessing Church to oppose Hitler and to oppose the Nazi party of that day, and they literally were executed for it. Bonhoeffer clearly was uncomfortable to the point that there were plans to assassinate, plans that were thwarted to assassinate Hitler. So we can look at that extreme example and then also trace throughout thousands of years of history where there are times in different lands and at different places where Caesar is requiring what only the Lord can ask for and only the Lord desires. And Christians then, now, and forevermore, until the Lord tarries his return, we must be obedient to stand in direct violation of government when they ask 
something that stands in violation of what God asks of us. Now, there are exceptions, yes. And so Nazi Germany, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I mean, we could see those examples. If we had time, we could cite other examples of where this occurs. But I think it's important for us to say, even with those exceptions, Jesus understood that. He knew that. He knew that Paul would talk about this here. We are called to give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Now, how how do you actually live that out? What a basic level. If God is instituting a, a role of human government, he has instituted it for the flourishing of all of humanity for the good, the common good of of the citizens here on this earth. So when we live law-abiding lives, as long as the laws do not violate the, the kingdom of God and his word, it works for the common good. It's a way that we love neighbor by listening and obeying the law of the land. We we pay our taxes. Why? Because God has instituted government in such a way that there are things that occur, sanitation, education, military. I mean, there there are benefits that are the common good as we come together. So when Jesus says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, we show respect. We show deference for elected officials. We, We are called to be civically responsible and informed voters at a local level, at a state level, at a national level, we, we at, a, at a very basic level, we are called to render to Caesar by being on our knees for women and men who are in elected positions. Paul doesn't leave this to the imagination. He's writing to his protege in the ministry, Timothy, and he says, hey, Timothy, first of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Well, who are all people, Paul? For kings and all who are in high positions. Them too, Paul is saying, that we Christians may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So there is a call that we have to render to Caesar by living a quiet, dignified life, no doubt, but also being on our knees. The the greatest gift, I think, to the political systems of our world, locally, state level, national level, are believers who, who literally wear out the carpet as they're on their knees, lifting up, lifting up, well, local mayors, councilwomen, councilmen, at a local city level, Praying, there should be millions of people, under Paul's words here, millions of Alabamians who are praying for Kay Ivey, praying for Governor Ivey. Millions of Alabamians who are on our knees praying for state uh, legislators, national legislators, praying for the executive branch, praying for the president, for the vice president, others in the executive branch, praying that God would guide, God would lead, God would give wisdom to. I I was walking through this passage this week in my study, and, and the Holy Spirit was just blowing on me, convicting me, and it was just this clear to me as I had to say to God, God, forgive me for spending so much time talking politics and so little time 
on my knees interceding for men and women who are serving in these important, essential positions that are God-ordained positions. They're, they're good positions that God has given to us for common good and common flourishing. I don't know about you. Maybe that's not an issue for you, but for me it is. I, I, I'm quick to have an opinion, and I tell you, when my opinion is not formed not formed by me praying to God about these individuals more than I'm talking about them. It's not healthy in my own life, and it's not healthy in yours either. It just isn't. One of the reasons that politics in our land is so polarizing, I do believe it's because we're not bathing these people in constant prayer. I don't care what side of the divide. This, this isn't about divides. This isn't about how you vote. It's about God's word just clearly calling us to be on our knees praying. This is a Christian's earthly allegiance. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. But notice here that there is a call that is a greater call. And it balances and interprets this earthly call. And it is a Christian's eternal allegiance. So Jesus says, render, again, in your copy of God's word, it might say give to God what is God's. Now go back to that denarius. Jesus is holding it up as an object lesson. He's saying whose likeness, whose image is on this coin, it was simple, it was Caesar's. Now he's saying to everybody who's listening, well, whose image is on you? Whose likeness is upon you? And you are called to render, well, the answer to that, Genesis 1.27, is that we're created in the Imago Dei. We're created in the image of God. Every person who has ever lived is, has this equalizing truth about them, that they're created in the likeness and the image of God. No matter where they were born, when they were born, they're created in that equalizing truth that we're all created in the image and likeness of God. We, every last person that breathes on this earth, is coined by their creator, minted by their maker. There is no such thing as a self-made woman. There is no such thing as a self-made man. I ask you, how many of you were consulted about when you would be born? How many of you were consulted about where you would be born? How many of you were consulted about how tall you would be? None of us. We are here only because of God's prerogative. We exist only at the will and the whim of an infinite God who breathed life into Adam and Eve and breathes life into every person that exists. Not just Christian, every person. That's why we talk about people knowing that ultimately who we are talking about are individuals who are image bearers. It changes. It changes how we talk about people. It has to, believers, right? It has to because we are all created in that image. Now, that image is tarnished. It is tarnished by sin, isn't it? It is polluted because none of us live in the Garden of Eden and we choose sin and ultimately sin is something that runs with us, entangles us. I have a coin cup in my truck 
you've got something like this. I don't know what you use. But what do you do with loose change? What I do with loose change is I just put it in this coin cup. I've had my truck now five, six years, and there are some interesting things going on in the bottom of that cup. I mean, there, do you know how coins do this over a long period of time? If you start digging in the bottom of that coin cup, the, the pennies are sticking to each other. It's just this ickiness of, I think, Coke Zero residue that gets into that cup. I think that's what's going on there. There's some green colors that are happening. There's some rusting that is occurring. It is literally this chemistry project that's right there in that cup holder where all these coins are. And every one of them has a sense of rust and tarnish. None of them are newly minted coins from the Treasury Department. None of them are. And neither are we. All of us in the sanctuary, all of us that are worshiping online, we have the rust of sin that corrodes us. We have the ickiness of the sin that we choose that ultimately hampers us and hampers our witness. But not only are we created in the image of God, but we're being recreated in the likeness and the image of Jesus the Son. So what you look like now is not what you're going to look like in eternity to come. And even now as a follower of Jesus, he, through the blood of Christ, is a solvent that is, is taking away those portions of that rust, taking away the ickiness of sin, and he's shaping you into the original intent of the maker, which is to look like his son. And so all of us are going to stand before a holy God as, as image bearers. And we have to answer to that holy God, what do we owe what you've done for us? You have sent your son to forgive us of our sin. You are using the Holy Spirit to remake us. What do we owe to you for what you've done for us? And the answer isn't a few coins. It isn't the head tax. You know what it is? It's all of our life. God the Father sent his only begotten son. And in light of what God has given us to redeem us and to recreate us, what we render to God is everything. Everything. I pay quarterly taxes as a minister. Some of you pay quarterly taxes there's always a reckoning that occurs when I'm meeting with my accountant. Did I pay enough? Did I pay enough in my quarterly payments to where I get to the end of the year? Or am I going to owe more and then also have to pay that first installment of the new year? And there's always this kind of tenuous back and forth kind of wondering. But at the end of the day, all of us are going to come before a holy God and the accounting is this. We cannot pay anything that is going to satisfy the holiness of God, but be reminded of this, Jesus has paid it all. And when we're followers of him, we are his. And so the holiness of God looks upon us in our sinful humanity and sees what, not what we owe, but what has been paid for us. And so in light of what Jesus has paid for us, we serve him, not trying to impress God, but we serve him out of gratitude 
So what do you owe God? You owe him all of your life. And some of you in this room are saying, you know something? I have some areas of my life that like I'm trying to hide from the IRS. I'm trying to hide this from God. And people all the time, they try to kind of get a loophole, try to cheat this or cheat that. And maybe the IRS, maybe the audit will happen or not happen. But I tell you this, the gaze of God is upon all of us and there's nothing that we can hide from him. So stop. I mean, stop. There are habits in your life, follower of Jesus, that you know are not honoring to the Lord. He sees this. He knows this. He loves you in the midst of this. But he has better for you. Give it to him. Confess it to him. There's some of you here this very morning that, are, that there, have been, there have been days or weeks that have gone by where you've not conversed with your maker. You've not conversed with the one who's redeemed you, who has written a love letter of his word to you, who opens an avenue for you to bring everything before him. And there's been silence in that relationship and you think that he doesn't see that. He does. We come before him and we, we pray. And we read his word to be able to converse with the one who has paid it all for us. We owe him our time. We owe him our trust. Does anyone that is worshiping with us online feel like you know exactly who to trust right now? One person says this, one person says that. Family says this. But I know who to trust. I, I tell you this, at a basic level, God is one in the midst of question marks. And they're endless question marks. Are we going to be able to start school on time, not start school on time? What is school going to look like? Well, I don't know. Question marks. Is Alabama, Auburn football, we're going to be able to kick off? We're going to be able to be in the fans or not? I do. Question marks. I mean, all of this is before us. But in the midst of all the question marks, there is one who I know we can trust. And so my question is, are you trusting him in the midst of your question marks? Are you hiding from him? Trusting in your own knowledge, your own self the wisdom of others around. Well, yes, we need to learn from experts. We need to trust experts. There's no doubt about that. But there's one who deserves our undying allegiance and trust, and that is God. What do you owe him? You owe him all of your life. What is he given? He's given to you all his life as his own son, pay the ultimate price to be able to shape us again, renew us into the image that he designed originally for us to look like. This is what it means to render to Caesar what is Caesar's and render to God what is God's. Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your word and the way that it speaks to our heart. We pray that even this morning that we would be reminded of the way that your Holy Spirit speaks to us even today. I pray for that person who has never trusted you as Savior and Lord that even this morning that you would draw them to you in repentance. I pray for the individual that's a follower of you, but there are aspects of their life they're holding back from you. They're hiding from you. May we today confess our sins to you, 
because you're faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us, to renew us into the image of your Son. So we need the, the solvent of your Spirit, the blood of Christ, to cover us in, in the rust of sin, the corrosion of life. Help us to give to you all of who we are, not holding back anything from you. We pray this in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus, the one who sent the Holy Spirit to guide us and lead us, even now as we respond. Amen.